The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. How you doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back to the only true democracy in talk that is heard everywhere, that is seen everywhere. And I'm excited. We have an incredible uh, rest of the week before I take off for a little Christmas, New Year's uh, vacation. And I'm very excited to have uh, this gentleman on the program today. One, because I'm a huge fan. Uh, two, because he gets things done. And I really respect a guy that does that. And three, he's a homeboy. He's from Boston like me. So I love it. Today, we have Sean O'Brien. Now, Sean O'Brien is the general president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. He is a fourth generation teamster from Boston. He's committed to winning and defending strong national contracts, organizing new members, and aggressively taking on employers. He's focused on mobilizing rank and file teamsters, and he does it through education and increased engagement. He travels extensively to visit with members at work sites throughout the entire country. And in addition to fighting for workers, he has helped to raise millions of dollars for charitable causes, including local 25 signature event, Light Up the Night. That's an annual gala to raise money for children with autism. Founded back in 1903, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters represents 1.3 million hardworking people here in the United States, in Canada, and in Puerto Rico. Be sure to visit Teamster.org for more information. You can follow them on Twitter and Instagram, where their handle is at Teamsters. Like them on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Teamsters. And Sean's, Sean's Twitter handle showing that he truly is a Boston guy, at Teamster SOB. Sean O'Brien, not, not, not the other SOB. Uh, President O'Brien, more than a pleasure to have you back in the program. Thank you for taking the time up before we hit 2024. And uh, excited to have you on and excited because there's good news too, right? I mean, we, you know, we're like, oh, we got some more stuff to talk about today. Thank you for being with us. Welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm a huge fan as well uh, of you, not only because you do great work, but also you're a fellow Bostonian, so we have to put that right out there. But yeah, great. Um, we're on a 12-day strike with DHL. Uh, we organized 1,200 workers uh, over the summer, um, and the company has been very difficult to deal with. Um, so we struck them when we got to a point where we didn't think we were going to uh, get the contract our new members deserved. And then we extended picking lines nationwide because we get strong language in a national agreement that allows us uh, to support local 100 strike. Um, so we did that. We just proved that, you know, power numbers and working together, collaborating uh, all over the country and, and slowing down commerce, that we were able to get a great, successful first contract for those workers. Uh, we've improved their health care, improved their wages significantly, uh, improved safety conditions, also uh, made certain that we have neutrality when we go after 1,800 more workers and access to the premise. So all around, um, 
you know, it was, it was a tremendous victory and uh, team effort. Uh, very proud of the work we did. We finished up around 520 this morning. Um, those workers went back to work. We took down the lines that we extended, and uh, commerce will start to go again. So anybody waiting on DHL packages, don't blame the teams. Just blame DHL. Yeah, absolutely. And I said I got my mind today, so hopefully uh, things will start rolling in. Uh, DHL CVG, as you just heard from the president, uh, you know, the Teamsters have secured improved wages, benefits, working conditions. This was a 12 day strike, right? And, and, and because and this is why when people say, why do people strike? Well, one, striking's effective. I mean, we see that all the time. Um, and, and two, if you have unfair labor practices and you continue to work with crappy pay and you're not getting proper benefits and you're and you're working in poor uh, conditions, you're not having proper working conditions. The corporations aren't going to change anything because they go, they're not complaining, they're not asking for anything else. Um, so, and, so I want to talk about a couple of things here. I want to talk about the power of a strike, but I also want to talk about the power of unity because that's one thing we see with the Teamsters again and again and again. We saw unity with this nationwide. We see Teamsters united when you know other people are striking. We saw that with the Screen Actors Guild, which went on a lot longer than 12 days. Uh, so talk to us about that. Talk to us about striking. Talk to us about unity. Well, strike is very difficult. I mean, especially if you're a rank and file member and most of our members uh, or most people in the labor movement, you know, work week to week or can't go two weeks on a paycheck. But the one thing that we are very good at is our general secretary. Secretary Treasurer uh, manages a $300 million strike and defense fund, so we're able to uh, pay, our, pay our members while they're out on strike, so they're not financially compromised. Um, and strike's a, a last, uh, uh, last resort, but you know, I always tell people, if we have to strike, it's not the teams to strike, and it's these corporations that choose not to reward their workers, and they're striking themselves. So that's the narrative that we've actually put out there. Uh, this one was extremely, extremely uh, well thought well-planned, uh, well-executed. Um, think about it, you know, like people like yourself, consumers like myself are awaiting packages um, yeah. holding commerce because of the DHL's unreasonable uh, willingness to give the people what they deserve. So, uh, you know, like I said, it strikes are very effective. We avoided one uh, with UPS because we leveraged uh, 340,000 members. Uh, we controlled 7% of the gross national product being delivered every day. So that was some power. And we the, the biggest power that we had throughout all these uh, conflicts was the members' willingness to support one another and to unite. It wasn't just about the Teamsters. We had other unions supporting um, our efforts, both the UPS and DHL. Um, so I think one thing that we have proven as an organization, speaking specifically for the Teamsters, is that we are setting the tone what it is to stand up and fight, but more importantly, to mobilize, unite, um, and be successful on behalf of our 1.3 million members. So uh, I'm a very excited about our recent victory, and I'm getting ready to go on to the next battle, which is Anheuser-Busch. Oh, and you'll win. <laughs> I know you'll win. Teamsters win, and with you at the helm, you'll, you'll definitely win. Uh, I want people, you know, who are watching and listening, you know, when you hear things like CVG, what is that? So this agreement protects 1,100 ramp and tug workers of Teamsters Local 100. That's at the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport, CVG. They were forced out on strike on December 7th. Um, I want to read a quote from you, uh, President O'Brien. You said, picket lines established by Teamsters Local 100 were honored and held down all over this country, making clear to DHL and employers everywhere that Teamsters solidarity, solidarity is a force to be reckoned with. And you went on to say, Teamsters don't cross picket lines isn't just a saying. It means something in our union 
and it works. And and you talk about, and you've been quoted in talking about how specifically with this battle, and we've seen it with other battles, that DHL, you said, tried hard to divide us. Can you speak to that? Because that's what corporations try and do, right? Yeah, well, I think you mentioned this was an unfair labor practice strike and um, they, they were trying to divide us, you know, they were trying to pit uh, the workers against the union, um, telling them they didn't need an intermediary, telling them that the Teamsters uh, were not good for the relationship. And then when the strike happened, they were trying to bribe people to cross picket lines and give them a thousand dollar bonus. Uh, thankfully, we've got enough resources where, um, you know, we were able to point out to the workers that this is only temporary, a contract will be permanent and we can build upon it moving forward. So a little bit of short-term pain for long-term gain. Uh, thankfully, uh, our members stood tall, uh, the workers stood tall, and uh, we were able to uh, demonstrate to DHL that uh, our members' voices uh, are a lot powerful than their false promises. And um, look, the end result is we've got a great contract to build upon, and we also have the ability to organize 1,800 more workers uh, in that same facility um, that do similar work. So we're very excited about adding almost 3,200 new members under a great contract um, with a great future. Um, no longer will there be threats of retaliation or retribution for organizing and or enforcing the new collective bargaining agreement. So uh, tremendous victory, tremendous victory. Now, absolutely. You mentioned just a few minutes ago that, you know, you said, um, yep, 5.30 in, in the morning, you know, you got, you know, they got, they got the call or it came down 5.30 in the morning. And and this just is so impressive to me. You know, I you know I hardly sleep as it is. You, I'm I, I'm not even going to compete with you on that. I know you get far less sleep. And I say that because Teamsters, you and all the representatives out there, you keep the pressure on. You kept the pressure on DHL, and you literally negotiate round the clock. The fact that you said 5:30 this morning is just an example of that. Yeah, I mean, our, our team did a great job led by Vice President Bill Hamilton um, and our attorneys, and more importantly, the rank and file committee uh, that's involved in any and all negotiations uh, were extremely valuable but vigilant to make sure that where we had the leverage, especially where, you know, this was, as I stated earlier, this was a plan and it was executed. Uh, we didn't have a, uh, we, we, when we first uh, honored 100 pick, when we took 100 out on strike, the members on local 100, uh, we wanted to see <clears throat> the strength that we had. And then we just kept building upon it by, you know, extending local 100 members picket lines to any and all locations in major cities. And every day we just kept adding more and more and more and more pressure. Uh, where it got to a point where the company had to concede. And I hate to jump in. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to talk about Anheuser-Busch, and we're going to talk about a presidential roundtable. More with President Sean O'Brien, president of the Teamsters. Follow them at Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Teamsters. Follow uh, President O'Brien at Teamster SOB, and follow the Teamsters at Teamsters. Be sure to like and go to the website, teamster.org. Back in a moment. We are 
back. I'm Leslie Marshall. He is President Sean O'Brien, General President of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Please check out their website. I want to give you that information again, teamster.org. Find out everything they do. Maybe you want to unionize or maybe you want to find out more about becoming a Teamster, working in a job uh, where the Teamsters have your back. And they really do. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram. Their handle on both is at Teamsters. Be sure to like them on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Teamsters. We're back with President O'Brien. Thank you for holding, sir. Welcome back. Um, Again, congrats on DHL. And you said next up is Anheuser-Busch. You know, you have, uh, what, like 99% (laughs) support um, to authorize a strike um, among the Teamsters, among uh, the workers at Anheuser-Busch. That is an overwhelming 99% to authorize a strike. Um, maybe give us uh, some comparisons, you know, when you have some votes out there, but also why is this strike coming down? Are these, you know, are, are these workers also fighting for better working conditions, better wages and better benefits? Yeah, I mean, obviously our members worked so like every other uh, industry we represented worked long and hard through the pandemic, sacrificing a lot of time at home. This company um, gave them a 10 percent increase through the pandemic. And as soon as the pandemic was over you know, remove that 10, 10% increase. So, you know, we're very passionate about getting a strong contract with large wage increases. The company has demonstrated they can pay them. They're a very profitable company. Um, one of the big issues we have in these negotiations is securing job protections and guarantees. We have 12 major breweries across the country. We want to make certain that they stay open, but more importantly, guarantee the jobs. As we all know, technology plays a big role in a lot of industries we represent, and we want to make certain that if technology is implemented, that the jobs are protected and new jobs are recreated as a result of it. We want to secure uh, the best retirement benefits for our members. A lot of these breweries have generational connections. A lot of families, second, third, and fourth generations are working in these breweries. We want to make sure that we secure a future for the fifth and sixth generations, uh, but also protect the work. And, you know, as we know, Anheuser-Busch is owned by InBev, um, which is a very, very uh, difficult company to deal with. Uh, We're making tremendous uh, demands uh, on behalf of our members. Um, But you know, we walked away, they walked away from the table from us on November 16th after we secured uh, the best health care possible for actives and retirees. We wanted to secure a commitment uh, regarding the number of jobs in the future of all the breweries nationwide. And when the company wouldn't give that commitment to us, then um, they chose to walk away from the table and we are not going back to the table unless we get a commitment uh, to guarantee the jobs and also the breweries. Um, but more importantly, again, we're mobilizing our members. We're doing worksite visits. Our general secretary treasurer and myself are going out, visiting the memberships, holding rallies, uh, very effective. And um, we're going to get the best contract this, this uh, industry has ever seen, and we're going to move forward. Um, and look, if Anheuser-Busch, again, doesn't choose to do what's right by the people that make them the success, then they will be ultimately choosing to strike themselves. And we've made it very clear to this company, we will not be working without a contract. We will not work beyond the expiration date, and we will withhold our labor if that's what needs to happen. Yeah, that expiration date is coming up. Our time flies, especially over the holidays, February 29th, 2024. And um, all you're asking for is improved wages. That's disgusting that they took it away. You know, I mean, I mean, not even saying keep the 10 percent and we won't add more. That would be crappy, too. But I mean, you know, to take it away, Um, they improve wages, but also 
you guys are fighting with these these employees, and you're talking about 5,000 Teamsters across the company's 12 uh, breweries throughout the United States to protect their jobs, right? Because some of these people don't feel that they have job protection. They feel vulnerable in their jobs. Um, also, health care uh, to secure that and retirement benefits. Um, you know, these. this is one of the great things about being a union worker. You know, you're not just talking about wages. You are talking about benefits like health care and retirement, but also job protection. Can you speak to some of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I think our members are very passionate about um, all those issues that are on the table. I mean, look, a 99% strike authorization vote, that is tremendous leverage for us as negotiators and as rank and file members uh, to put a lot of pressure on this company. And, um, you know, we have to fight. We have to stand up. This is our time. Um, especially in an industry and, and with a company uh, like Anheuser-Busch who continues to be profitable year after year after year, uh, there's no reason why they shouldn't be a responsible employer and reward these folks. I mean, we're going to do whatever we need to do uh, to secure the best contract. And it's not just about the 5,000 members in the breweries at Anheuser-Busch. It's also about uh, the dis distributorships that uh, my, you know, the majority of them are recognized are, are, organized and represented by teams is delivering uh, the liquor and beer. We need to set the tone nationally so that we can secure the best contracts within the industry, whether it's, you know, Miller or Coors or whoever that may be, uh, but also all these distributorships. So we are out there, I think you know and you've recognized, we are trying to set industry standards nationwide so that um, we are setting the standards, no one else, and we have to uh, make certain that uh, we continue to do that on behalf of the most important people in our union, that's the rank and file members. And so far, you guys have been doing a good job. I know you're not where you want to be uh, with Anheuser-Busch, but I mean, I know you guys have reached tentative agreements to end tiered health care, to restore retiree health benefits. That was just last month. But Anheuser-Busch, they delay negotiating on important job security issues. And when you talk about profit, $58 billion, billion with a B, last year in 2022, and they announced a billion dollar in stock buybacks to wealthy investors. So they have no problem writing a check. They just don't want to write a check to the people who make them that $58 billion. Well, that's the problem. You know, you're writing checks out to people. And look, everybody has a right to invest money. Uh, but you're writing out an increasing uh, profit sharing and dividends to people that have never, ever uh, added any type of value uh, to the products that are uh, that are uh, brewed uh, in these in these uh, breweries, and it's it's actually a slap on the face to to our members who go out there and sacrifice time with their families, uh, work long hours in some cases, um, and you're rewarding people that have never done anything. Again, it's getting back to let's take care of the people on Main Street, and you know forget about the people on Wall Street. I mean that's that's what needs to happen in these negotiations, and we're going to remind them. Look, they're gonna. They they think that they can um, walk away and, and and close breweries and lay people off. Um, we're not gonna allow that to happen. And, and they've got a serious problem. They've got some serious decisions they need to make. And um, I think we're proven, especially with companies like UPS, DHL, and other companies that we've struck, that we are not afraid because our members, 99% strike authorization. That is huge. That's a huge signal. Uh, to the company that they need to get back to the table and get serious. I want to know who the one guy is. No, just <laughs> the one you, um, you know, you guys had rallies in New Hampshire, California, Florida. I know you have other actions, uh, you know, taking place. Um, yeah, this is a big deal. I know you, you'll definitely be successful, 
But, you know, it kills me if, look, I'm not the head of a corporation, but if I was the head of a corporation and I see what happens with DHL, I see what happens when there uh, when there are strikes, you know, they're they're not going to win. The workers are going to win and they should want the workers to win. It is the workers dedication. It is it is the workers who work so hard. They're working tirelessly that make this company so successful and so profitable. That's the problem with, you know, these companies that are successful. They actually think that they can dictate policy procedure and how people are gonna um, you know, uh, live their lives according to them. The reality of it is, look, we may not have all the money that they have, but we have got heart, and we've got intestinal fortitude, and we got fight in us, and we've got courage and conviction. You know, we have nothing to lose in any of these fights, especially with Anheuser-Busch. And, you know, that's a pretty strong, uh, that's a pretty strong characteristic to have going into a fight when you have nothing to lose. And right. people that have the most to lose are Anheuser-Busch, the stockholders, uh, and the general public. So we're, we, we feel like we're in a very comfortable position. Um, we fight better when we're on our backs, and uh, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to close this disparity like we've been doing everywhere else. But, you know, there's a common theme when you really think about it. DHL, non-American company. InBev, non-American company. They don't respect yeah. America, but by the time we're done, they're going to respect the American worker. Absolutely. Well, we have a little more than a minute. I want you to quickly tell me about this awesome first presidential roundtable. This is uh, incredible. Last week, you hosted your first uh, roundtable at Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Asa Hutchinson, Marion Williamson, Cornell West, Dean Phillips met with you, uh, President O'Brien. Uh, tell us uh, quickly about this presidential roundtable, um, why you want it and what you got from it. Well, I think it's important that we get to interview every single candidate, whether they have a D, an R, and I. I know in the past it's only been Democrats, and I know you've, you've been involved in that as well. But we figured it's different this time. You know, we often two times as labor unions, we're taken for granted as well, thinking that people already, uh, because we have a, you know, a past of supporting Democrats, that that's all we're going to support. We're going to support people who are going to support our members, but also help restore a, a great working middle class once again. And, um, you know, it's, it's our obligation to our rank and file members to do our due diligence with every single candidate. Uh, we've invited every single one of them. We are negotiating right now uh, with dates with uh, former President Trump, uh, Chris Christie, uh, Nikki Haley, uh, Joe Biden. So we're just waiting on commitments and we're going to sit down and we're going to ask every one of them the tough questions. And like I said earlier, if they all don't, if people don't check the boxes, then, you know, um, we're not going to uh, recommend them to our members. But in the end of the day, we've got to pick the best candidate for working people, but the best candidate for America as well. I agree. And I think I think that's awesome. Um, I, I wish I could have been there or fly on the wall. Uh, President O'Brien, thank you for taking the time. Uh, once again, folks, go to Teamster.org. Teamster.org. A lot of valuable information there to find out more about the Teamsters. And also like them on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Teamsters. Follow them on Twitter. Follow them on Instagram. Same handle on both at Teamsters. President O'Brien, to you, your family and all the Teamsters out there. Praying, crossing my fingers for a, a successful contract, which I know you'll get with Anheuser-Busch before the end of February. And just hope you have a wonderful uh, Christmas, um, a wonderful uh, New Year. And uh, some, sometime we have to uh, go have some Sam Adams together in Beantown. Hello. 
I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Only True Democracy in Talk. You can see us everywhere, hear us everywhere. Second half of a great hour. Um, first half with uh, President uh, Sean O'Brien from uh, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. And then the second hour, somebody's a friend uh, and a friend of the show. And, he, you know, he used to be on all the time. And I don't know, uh, you know, we didn't break up. So uh, I, I, I hope he will uh, continue to be back after today. He is a New York Times. I'm so proud of him, too. He's done such great stuff. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He has been among the pioneers in the revival of American political history. He is the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Class of 1941 Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University and a CNN political analyst, a regular guest on NPR's Here and Now, and I heard you on that, actually. He's the award-winning author and editor of 25 books, including... The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress and the Battle for the Great Society. He is the winner of the D.B. Hardiman Prize for the best book on Congress and Fault Lines, a history of the United States since 1974 that was co-authored and burning down the House, Newt Gingrich, the fall of a speaker and the rise of the new Republican Party. The New York Times named the book as an editor's choice in one of the 100 notable books in 2020. His most recent books are Abraham Joshua Heschel, A Life of Radical Amazement and the Presidency of Donald J. Trump, A First Historical Assessment. And he edited And Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Lies and Legends About Our Past, that he co-edited with Kevin Cruz. He's currently working on a new book about the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and the 1964 Democratic Convention entitled, Is This America? Reckoning with Racism at the 1964 Atlantic City Democratic Convention. And in the summer, uh, this past summer, NYU Press will publish his new co-edited book, Our Nation at Risk, Election Security as a National Security Issue. In 2024, this January, just around the corner, Columbia Global Reports will publish his book in defense of partisanship. Uh, he is Julian Zelizer, and Julian has published over 1,200 op-eds. He's received fellowships from the Brookings Institution, the Guggenheim Foundation, the Russell Sage Foundation, the New York Historical Society, and New America. You can follow him on formerly Twitter, now X. His handle is at Julian Zelizer, J-U-L-I-A-N-Z-E-L-I-Z-E-R. That's at Julian Zelizer, J-U-L-I-A-N-Z-E-L-I-Z-E-R. Welcome back, Julian. Good to have you with us. You make me feel so inept and inadequate when I read your bio. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mean it to be that way, but thanks for having me. It's great to be back with you. And, and it's great to have you back. Thank you for taking the, taking the time. Uh, glad to talk to you before the end of 2023 here. Um, Donald Trump, when he ran, and I think you and I talked about this uh, the first time he ran, I think we both agreed he had a possibility of getting the nomination and becoming president. It is a numbers game. We have a country very divided very tight race, right? And, you know, for the past few election cycles, and it would look like coming, going forward, it's going to be that way and, and very tight. It looks like Donald Trump's going to be the nominee. It looks like there's going to be a Trump-Biden matchup yet again. Um, there is a possibility that he could become a president again. Um, a couple of things, uh, Julian. One, first off, a president can only, via the Constitution, serve two terms. Is that consecutive? So could Donald Trump serve two or he could only serve one more term if elected, one correct? More, one more okay. term legally. One more term. But one more term, a lot of people, especially on my side of the aisle, you know, Democrats, um, feel that it would be very dangerous. They thought it was a very dangerous first four years. January 6th was just one of many examples. Um, and you wrote an opinion piece 
uh, that says entitled opinion seven reasons a second Trump term would be dangerous. I like that because, you know, when they when they would have me write, especially uh, for the Fox blog, they would always have me five or ten. So I like seven. (laughs) I like something different. Um, Talk talk to me, um, you know, about uh, this. I mean, there's there's so much I want to get through. Um, But. I mean, already you write in your piece that he is setting off so many alarms, whether it is rhetoric that is reminiscent of the days of Hitler um, or whether it's somebody who not so jokingly said he would be a dictator on day one with my colleague uh, Sean Hannity on the network that I work on opposite your network, CNN, Fox News. Um, So speak to us about some of these alarms uh, before we get into the list of seven. Yeah, I mean, look, first, we we should always take him seriously. Uh, People keep making the mistake of hearing him say something. And we know historically, he often tries to do exactly what he says. He's not someone who covers everything up. Uh, And after the record of the first term, especially with uh, using presidential power to try to overturn your loss in an election, uh, when he says things like this, sure, maybe he's joking, but there's some truth to the joke as well, or he might not be joking at all. Uh, he exercised presidential power very aggressively. We saw that not just with January 6th, we saw it with the Ukraine phone call, we saw it with funding for the border wall. So there's many reasons to believe he will double down. He'll be freed from some of the constraints that he still had. He'll be surrounded by advisors who are going to give him a green light on many things. Um, and I think now he's familiar with what you can do, and that makes someone more dangerous. Uh, when they try to do it again, they are going to be more sophisticated, and that includes someone like him. Uh, so I think people should be taking these warning signs very seriously after what we've gone through. Well, you had talked about surrounding himself. He does plan to stack, as you wrote in your piece, the executive branch in his favor, um, and he would appoint loyalists. That would expand his power and his power to hire and fire federal government workers, making an already dangerous person even more dangerous because he would have that uh, power expansion. Yeah. I mean, we've been hearing already about two different elements of this. One is the inner circle, and it's very clear that the kind of Washingtonian Republicans who are still Uh, part of his governing coalition in the first term will not be there. So, you know, you won't you won't have some of the figures who were trying to restrain a president who is difficult to restrain. They will be gone. They will be replaced by Trumpians, uh, kind of people from his inner circle who are scared or uninterested in saying no to anything. And and that will create a, a really powerful echo chamber for someone who doesn't even really need that. And then second, what we've been learning about uh, is a more sophisticated plan uh, that's being done in part with the Heritage Foundation. And it's a roadmap to essentially stack the bureaucracies with loyalists at different levels so that the advice coming in and the recommendations coming in square with what he wants. uh, And to give greater flexibility to the president to hire and fire civil servants Uh, by undermining the protections that were put in the early 20th century. And the point of that is then you have more people in the government who are beholden uh, to him for their job. So this is a plan that's pretty serious uh, and I think would change the tenor uh, of, of what he says and change the possibilities of him being successful when he tries to use presidential power. What about people that say, oh, he's all 
He's all bark, no bite. Um, he's used this kind of language before. This is bravado. You know, this is what he says to, you know, fire up his base and that kind of thing. And, you know, he, he's, he's not really serious. He really doesn't mean it. What would you say to that? I don't think that there's there's not much evidence that he's not serious. I mean, it's it's possible he says this stuff to fire up his base. He says it because he knows it will garner media attention. Works very well, as we saw. But that doesn't mean he's not quite serious about trying this. And and we now have a four-year record where it's very clear what he will try to do. I mean, uh, some we saw him do. Uh, so, you know, again, January 6th and everything that surrounded it is a very real example of a president who saw no boundaries uh, to how you can deploy your power. And there were things he ended up not doing, but we've only learned about that because there was pushback from someone like a Mike Milley, uh, who now is saying all the steps he took to prevent someone he thought was dangerous uh, from acting in the ways that they want. There was the Muslim ban. There's just a uh, a kind of huge record at this point where to not take this seriously and call it bluster defies what we have learned about him. Uh, and I don't think we can uh, kind of, you know, think about him simply as someone who's just saying stuff. That's just not the record he's posed. You're a political historian. I'm a Democratic strategist and talk show host. And I want to ask you this before we get to the list, because I want to go through your list. I love your list and I agree with it. Um yeah. Are you surprised? Because I have to say I was a bit at first because I'm looking at numbers, but you look at history, right? And you look at political history. So are you surprised that he has such huge support again? And I say that because after he was defeated, that MAGA base didn't grow, it shrunk. So, uh, uh, you know what, I'll have you answer that. We'll take a break and I'll have you answer that on the other side. We'll take a break when we come back, answer that. Then I want to go through this list because I like it. And you're not just saying things that everybody else says. It's different, you know, and I like that. And that's what I like about you. We'll be back with our guest, Julian Zelizer. Be sure to follow him on X, formerly, or formerly Twitter, people that don't know what's called X now, um, at Julian Zelizer, J-U-L-I-A-N-Z-E-L-I-Z-E-R. We'll be back with him and you right after this. Don't go away. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Hey there, I'm Leslie Marshall. We are back with New York Times bestselling author and CNN political analyst Julian Zelizer. Please follow him on X at Julian Zelizer, J-U-L-I-A-N-Z-E-L-I-Z-E-R. Julian, thank you for holding and welcome back. My question at the uh, end of the first uh, segment in our interview was, are you surprised, um, you know, when we saw his base decreasing and a lot of Republicans being polled at that time, um, basically saying they voted for him once or maybe twice and they wouldn't again. They wanted to go forward. They wanted change in the Republican Party. They wanted decorum back in the Republican Party, that kind of stuff. Not that surprised. I mean, I think of that, uh, that's a lot of rhetoric. Uh, and so far, many Republicans have not shown they're serious about wanting a sea change. And it involves more than former President Trump. There's a lot of Republicans who have been on the rise who are very much like him. They are getting support in the party. Uh, so I think overall, the party's pretty comfortable with a lot of what the former president was about. They might not like how he acts all the time. They might not like the way he says everything, 
But generally, I think there's just been a lot of steady support. The surprise is, even though he lost, uh, he's managed to kind of craft the narrative that he didn't really lose. And that's been compelling because that's the partisan part of it that could have hurt him. Uh, but I think many Republicans are on board with the idea that he didn't even legitimately lose. And so it's not so surprising still, just from a historical perspective, to have a former president four times indicted, uh, including uh, for trying to overturn the election. The fact that's not disqualifying generally says right. less about the party. But it does say that we are in a very uh, unusual period, an unstable period in American history. Let's talk about your list of seven. I love it. And uh, let's start with lame duck freedom. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of freedom we talk about with other uh, presidents. They know they don't have to worry about reelection. He's not someone who's really going to think of legacy and who comes after him. So he is now free to do whatever seems best at the moment, whatever will bring him the most popularity. And that's when a, a president, if, if they don't use that lame duck power constructively to pursue a, a negotiation overseas that's controversial, but instead use it to aggrandize their own power, that's a dangerous place. Uh, and there's not a lot of threats that you can really hold over him if, if losing election isn't one of them. Okay, second is he's already survived impeachment twice. How come this is on your list? Well, I mean, it was always the danger with failed impeachment. I still think both impeachments were not only legitimate, but necessary. But here he is going to go into office if he is reelected. And the biggest threat Congress has for a president who's abusing power is this one. Uh, but I think he will be very comfortable uh, feeling that Republicans won't abandon him. They will defend him again. And that the Senate remains a firewall for anything uh, happening to him beyond being impeached, which has happened twice and it hasn't hurt him. So I think that power politically is now no longer going to be a check for the uh, former president if he's reelected. You touched upon this before we started the list. Uh, and number three is he would have outflanked the law. Um, and like you said, you know, the fact that he's even running, you know, <laughs> what's happened so far. Uh, so, so talk to us about that and why uh, that makes uh, him dangerous. Yeah, I mean, look, it's the same lesson, maybe even grander. Uh, not only has he survived impeachment, but if he wins uh, the election, he survived major indictments and, and other criminal cases. We're, I mean, in civil cases, we're, we're just talking about the four indictments. There's so much that has happened. And so if you imagine what will his mindset be going into office, he's not someone who's really affected by shame. Uh, and so the only question for him is, does this hurt him? And he will go in uh, You thinking he won the presidency uh, despite all these very serious uh, indictments, possibly convictions that came down on him. And so then what does that do to a president who doesn't fear impeachment, doesn't fear the law, uh, the checks and balances are gone. And then you're just counting on his own um, kind of good intentions and uh, well-meaning actions. And I think at this point, there's very little reason to believe that those will be very powerful in how he uh, you know, moves around the White House. Next up on the list, and we certainly have seen this, and we've seen this with the increase in poll numbers and how much support is his stranglehold on Republican loyalty. Is it fair to say that Republicans, for the most part, not all, but a lot, 
um, are pretty spineless when it comes to Trump. They're afraid of him. He's the bully, and they do pretty much what he wants and what he asks. Yeah, I mean, whether they're afraid of him or they just like him and what he does, I don't know which of the two it is, but both are true. And, you know, people spend a lot of time talking about Republican A or B who is opposing uh, the president. Liz Cheney, for example, former Congresswoman Cheney, gets, and rightfully, a lot of airtime, but they don't represent where the party is. And uh, people are continually surprised by poll after poll that shows his standing. And there comes a moment when you just have to let it sink in uh, that he has the backing of most of the party. And whenever a president has that historically, uh, that makes them uh, not only powerful, but feel emboldened. Uh, and again, with certain presidents and FDR, feeling emboldened will result in trying to pass legislation, uh, trying to do things for the country. But with former President Trump, feeling emboldened can lead to trying to amass power and do things that he sees in his interest. Uh, and that's where you get into this real red zone of American politics. At the, you know, a little bit ago, uh, at the beginning of this interview, we touched upon and talked a little bit about who he would surround himself with, who he, he would appoint, who would be in his cabinet. And uh, another on your list is that he would surround himself by yes people. Even though we talked about that, uh, you know, obviously common sense why that could be dangerous, but maybe more specifically, what not who some of these people would be, but what are some of the things that these people could do? Um, you know, obviously, you know, uh, branching off from expanding his power. Yeah, I mean, look, you think of that first term, the more that we have learned about it, uh, the more that some of these people uh, were trying to do, I talk about Secretary of Defense, uh, Mattis as an example, or Reince Priebus, who was chief of staff, uh, who many people were critical of and said, you know, don't serve in an administration, even if your goal is somehow to work within it and contain, and that's a fair criticism. But we have learned they did play that role. Uh, they were pushing back. They were subverting the person they were working for. They were doing as much as possible to keep him on some kind of legitimate uh, track. That's going to be gone. Uh, and it won't simply be about presidential power. You're right. One of the people who uh, would probably be very high up is Stephen Miller, who was really an architect of a lot of uh, Trump's immigration policies and his harshest rhetoric. And so those are the kinds of people who will be around him. And uh, when he says, let's do something, they're going to say, you know, let's do it times five instead of trying to figure out a way to stop him. And uh, I think that is another reason why we're in a more dangerous place in terms of what he might do than we were just a few years ago. You know, something I didn't even think of that you have on your list, and you're spot on here, uh, if you could speak to this, experience. Why would experience make him more dangerous? Every president, uh, you know, the more experience they have, the more they understand how to, to make the processes of government work. And so we talked a little while ago about this plan that he and the campaign are cooking up to change uh, the way civil servants are classified so that he has more room to maneuver to fire them and to hire who he wants. That's a level of thinking I don't really think he was up to uh, back in 2017 and 18. But it, it comes once you've been there for a while, you see how things work. We're also hearing stories about why he's doing so well in caucus states and primaries. He's not just running a, a, a undisciplined campaign. He's actually been working people in those states very, very aggressively for months 
so that one once it comes time to vote, he's going to have a whole infrastructure. And that's from experience of doing this before. So uh, I, I think kind of when he has these instincts to take bold action on policy or power, he'll just know how to do it much more than he did. And uh, that can make him much more effective at achieving his goals. And then last but not least, I, I, I you know, this is an obvious, I think, but um, and especially with what he said uh, in the interview with Sean Hannity and Fox, the real threat of vengeance. You say perhaps the biggest factor of all is that Trump is out for revenge. This, this whole campaign is about being out for revenge. We have less than a minute. Sorry, we didn't get to talk Putin. We'll have you back to do that. Uh, so less than a minute, speak to the uh, threat of vengeance. Real he, he says it all the time, and it's very clear this is what's on his mind. He wants to get back at everyone who's come out against him. And when someone feels that way and they have the power of the presidency, uh, that's when you get in another situation like a Richard Nixon. And I think we should take him at his word that this will be at the forefront of his agenda should he be in the White House. And voters should consider uh, what that might look like and how dangerous that is. Somebody shows you who they are, believe them, right? Uh, Julian Zelizer, CNN contributor, political analyst, actually, is a better title than me. Uh, CNN political analyst, New York Times bestselling author, so many books. Check him out. Follow him on X, formerly Twitter, at Julian Zelizer, at J U L I A N Z E L I Z E R. He's got a lot of great books. We've interviewed him. Uh, extremely educational, love history, love politics, you want to get one. I'm Leslie Marshall.